0: What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast, Season 2, Episode 3. Where am I? What day is it? What year is it? It's a strange year. My name's Corey Wong. Thanks for joining us. I have a very special guest today, Susan Tedeschi. You may know her as the lead singer and guitar player of the Tedeschi Trucks Band, along with her husband, Derek Trucks. I've seen them all around jam festivals, blues festivals. They are incredible seriously insane band she is such an incredible singer incredible songwriter and a great guitar player as well so we're gonna dive into a lot of these things i want you to take check this out though check this out let me pull this up in the year 2000 in the year 2000 get this in the year 2000 susan was nominated for a grammy best new artist check out these nominees for this year the winner christina aguilera macy gray Kid Rock, Britney Spears, and Susan Tedeschi. Wow! What an eclectic bunch. Pretty cool. And I have been a fan of hers for years. I did not get hip to her until about eight years ago or something like that. I don't remember what it was. There was some video online that was circulating of them playing a song at this giant festival, and she was singing this incredibly emotional tune, and then matched by no other than Derek Trucks, her husband on the slide guitar. They both were just destroying this stadium and me on the other side of YouTube. And I have been a huge fan ever since. Anytime I'm at a festival and I see that they are also on the bill, I'll either show up a day early or hang out late or stay a day late to check them out because they're that good. The live band is incredible. So I'm not going to hold you up any longer. Here's my interview with Susan Tedeschi. This season of the Wong Notes podcast is sponsored by Neural DSP. All Wong Notes listeners get 30% off with the voucher code WONG. Neural DSP creates industry-leading guitar and bass plugins. The range includes signature plugins from some of the best modern guitarists, such as Corey Wong, Pliny, Adam Nolly Good, and Tozan Abasi. The Archetype Corey Wong gives you everything from crystal clear tones to edge of breakup blues tones, whereas the 14 Amp series delivers all the crushing modern metal tones you could possibly need. And that nameless is my favorite Marshall amp ever. There's a plug-in here for every type of player, and you can get a 14-day free trial for every single one of them without even entering your credit card details. Find me another company doing that. Once you've found the ones you like, you get that 30% off your purchase by entering the code WONG at checkout. Where are you right now? Uh, well, by the way, hi, I'm Corey. Hi,
1: Corey. I'm Susan. I'm at home in Jacksonville, Florida inside our studio. And you can see here's our board. Whoa, sick.
0: You got a full, legit setup. This is
1: our Neve console. Is it was an 8048.
0: Oh, my gosh. And that's in your house?
1: Yeah, well, this is our studio in our backyard.
0: There must be advantages to having your own studio space and your own kind of what some would consider a retreat amongst everything going on right now.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, we are really blessed, that is for sure. Because now, you know, honestly, I don't think Bobby has stopped working since we've been off. <laughs> he's Yeah, he's been mixing records. I mean, we, we did one live record that was a collaboration of Mad Dogs and Englishmen, so Leon Russell and a lot of the living members, we did a live performance back in 2015, and they recorded it for a documentary and for a movie. And he's been mixing that album. And then on Amazing. top of that, we've also he's also been mixing. We did a live show with um, with Trey Anastasia from you know from Fish, and we yeah. did a show at La- Lock Music Festival, and it was the entire Layla record. And so he's been mixing that as well. So he's been very busy. He lives here now.
0: <laughs> so I was there last year when you guys played the lay Up. We, we were the band that played right before you. I play guitar in Wolfpack.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That was so fun.
0: We were playing on stage. There's a little wall. And then as soon as we're done, for people that don't know, the stage basically just spins around. And then you guys are there ready to play, which is amazing. That's such a fun way to... I mean, it's chaotic and it's crazy. and. Yeah. There's like no break between sets, but it's really fun. It's really cool.
1: <laughs> but people like that. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's always very entertaining. They always have amazing bands and quite a eclectic mix of people. So it's always really fun.
0: Well, we're diving right into it. So I, I have a couple questions about both of those things you just talked about. So those were done at the Lock-In Festival? Yeah. Both of those sets?
1: Yes. Both of those sets were at Lock-In.
0: That's incredible. Do you record every one of your live shows?
1: Bobby, do we record every one of our live shows? <laughs> yes, we do. We multi-track everything. We except for Europe, we're still trying to get that together.
0: That's incredible. That's so much fun because then th- the thing that I really enjoy about watching you guys play and watching what you do, it's very structured, but there's jumping points built within the structure, or at least so it seems from when I'm watching. It's like you have the song and you have these spots that are open where it's like, yeah, this might be two minutes. This might be 11 minutes. And then it's the thing like it, it it has arrangement and it has intentionality, but there's so much room for exploration. And I think that's really cool because then if you're recording those nights where the incredible magic happens, all of a sudden you've got it on tape.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, pretty much it is what you said. I mean, we will have an arrangement. But within that arrangement, we can go different places, and we know that it can be different people that can go in those different spots too. So, um, but Derek's really great at—he's you know our main band leader, and he's really good at kind of designating spaces where people can you know free solo and improv. You know whether it's you know Kebby Williams taking a, a horn solo, or Ephraim or Elizabeth, or if it's Gabe Dixon you know, taking a keyboard solo or organ solo or singing or whatever, you know, we have a lot of different directions we can go in. So
0: That's really fun. And your band now is has it morphed into a twelve piece?
1: Yeah, it's twelve piece band.
0: That's insane. That's so cool.
1: It's actually been a twelve piece since we did the Mad Dogs. So Mad Dogs I think was Alicia's first gig and that was um in twenty fifteen. So for five years we've been a twelve piece band. So Alicia Shakur, who's an amazing singer and And writer in her own right, you know, she joined our band when we started doing the Mad Dog set back at lock-in.
0: With a band that big, how do you manage that many personalities?
1: You know what? Very um, ironically, I I think a lot of it has to do with my husband because he really stays in touch with everybody all the time. But um, the personalities are just really good people, so it's not so hard to manage. You know, I think the, the problem you know in certain bands is that you have some outrageous personalities that are hard to tame or you just know who you're dealing with and you let them you know blossom and do what they do you know <laughs> so you know it really has to do with the chemistry of the people and that it goes all the way from the band all the way to the crew so everybody gets along in our group and it took a long time to get there but um well not actually not really too long um, but, I mean, it took a long time in our careers to put a band together that was like the all-star band, you know, and for the two of us to work together. So Derek and I started this band in 2010, so it's been together 10 years now, and, and the whole thing has been awesome. There's All the personalities have gotten along great, and everybody, you know, really seems to have a good time.
0: Yeah, I've seen different iterations of the band with just different members in and out, or a lot of collaborators well, like like you were talking about with the Mad Dog Englishman thing, there's Leon Russell, other people, you know, coming in playing that. And with your performance at Lock and doing the Layla album, you had Trey doing the whole thing. Trey is like the ultimate awesome guy to sit in on the gig. He sat in with Wolfpack at Red Rocks one time and it was just so much fun. There was just endless smiles and great time. There was like it was just kind of set up for it to work. And my question to you is, what does it take to have a good sit in as somebody who's sitting in? And what does it take as a band leader to be able to invite somebody into that and make them feel welcome and part of the thing?
1: Well, I mean, for one, you need to be the person that you invite in has to be an outstanding player and open to the possibility of improv and anything that can happen in the moment. Which, honestly, not all players are like that. But we usually have an incredible caliber of people that will sit in. And, you know, and I think that is, that's really wonderful. Um, But then also, um, you know, we try to put those people in a comfortable situation where they feel like they can do their thing, too. You know, so we try to make sure that, you know, there's a nice comfort zone on both sides. Um, but one thing I notice is it can be a little tricky having people sit in because you, you know, it is such a big band and I think sometimes people think they have to be heard. So like some people might want to crank up real loud, but it's really not that kind of band. You know, actually there's a lot of dynamics in our band. So we can come down to a whisper or we could be loud as a train. So you really have to be just aware of your setting. And a lot of the people that will sit in with us are quite aware of that and are really good at it so you know so we've been really fortunate Um, but I I think a lot of that has to do with just knowing who you have coming to sit in because it can be intimidating you know it's it's quite a force in nature you know the size of it but at the same time it's not like overly loud so um, so you know I think it's quite fun to be able to sit in and and we love it you know we have we have a good time.
0: Do you have a favorite sit-in of, a, of somebody who sat in with you guys on something? Or even, I mean, that's hard to say because then you're playing favorites. But is there one of those sit-ins that was just, it had that magic musical moment?
1: I mean, there's a few. I mean, I I find that there's certain people, um, for example, Luther Dickinson always is a wonderful sit-in. He really knows how to blend with the band and, and he always does an excellent job. And he can sing or play or just chill. Um, you know, which is great, or he can be featured. He's really fun. Another one is um the guitar player from Wilco, uh, oh, yeah. Nels Klein. Yeah. He yeah. blew my mind a few times. Like he sat him with us. It just made me realize, wow, there's some directions that I didn't realize that this band could go. <laughs> yeah. And he's just so creative and wow, like that was an incredible sit-in. Um, other times, I mean, it's been it's been amazing, you know, the people that have just been able to hop up um, and, and play and sing and, and do different stuff. But um, Sharon Jones, you know, when, yeah. when she was around, you know, we used to tour with her and Doyle Bramhall on one of our wheels of soul tour. And I always found that collaborating with the two of them was always really special because, um, because she had such an amazing energy and beautiful voice. Um, and then Doyle is sort of like, he's sort of in our band even though he's not in our band because since yeah. day one, like he's, been involved in the writing process as well as sitting in on sets and so he's like a brother to us you know he's he's an honorary member that can come and go at any time and he was on that Layla record as well that we did with with um with Trey so that was really special um but there's been a lot of amazing people and I can't even remember everybody honestly but you know we've we've just been so lucky you know to get to play with people like Mavis Staples and people like You know, of course, like Buddy Guy and and anybody, any Leon Russell, for example, you know, coming up and sitting in and playing is just like, it's a dream. You know, all these amazing artists that we've got to work with.
0: And that's one of the fun things about festivals and just the kind of scene. I mean, I've seen you guys at a bunch of jam festivals, blues festivals, that sort of thing. Those sort of settings are kind of prime for the sit in.
1: They are, because then something can happen unexpectedly, and they'll be like, hey, do you want to get up with us? We're going on in like 40 minutes, and I'm like, okay, what song am I learning? And it'll be like Johnny Winter," You know, Johnny Winter. one time, we we was playing at Wani, he's like, hey Sue, come to my trailer, and let's work out some songs, let's do Kansas City, and we'll do this song and that song, and I'm like, okay. And I got to sit in with Johnny Winner, and it's just like ridiculous, you know, and then There's moments like Bob Weir. He's like, hey, Susan, come by the bus and let's work up some tunes. And then I go and before you know it, you're at a festival and you're sitting in with Bob Weir or whoever. You know, it can be anybody. And that's the great thing about it is, you know, that's the beautiful thing about music is you can get up and it's the one language that we all speak and you can get up and do it in any language, any country in the world. And you can have a meaningful relationship with people even if you can't talk to them.
0: And there's something cool about the festival sit-in, where the musician experience and the audience experience, everybody knows they're getting something unique. And I use this term in the best way possible. It's opportunistic. Oh my gosh, we're here. I know of you, you know of me. We've never been able to do a thing, but now we're next to each, other. like, ah, let's,
1: let's play something. It's true. And actually you just reminded me of somebody who I know you've worked with recently, who is an absolute doll and so talented, is Jonathan Batiste. And one time we were playing at New Orleans Jazz Fest and he was standing side stage and we're like, get up here and play. And he hopped up there with Kofi. And of course, like it was magic and it was beautiful. And, you know, he was playing melodica and, you know, Oregon or whatever it was. And, you know, those moments are beautiful and special and you can't recreate them. And you don't know when they're going to happen, but when they do, it's so fun and exciting, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think that's why the festival experience also is just so special for the fans, Because they can even see it on the band members' faces like, oh my gosh, we did not see this coming. And then, you know, they're a part of something really special. So
1: that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many moments like that. I mean, just the other day, you know, we lost Toots Hibbert and I'm so thankful I got to perform with him and... and you know be friends with him and this was like back in the mid 90s and throughout the years we'd run into each other it's like oh hop up i'm like okay you know just because you know somebody 20 years and you can just hop up anytime you know and there's just there's such a beauty in that and and i miss a lot of these guys you know bb king is gone and you know and now toots hibbert i mean there's so many amazing artists that we've lost in the last decade and it's just heartbreaking but i feel blessed that i got to witness them
0: yeah Well, the sit-in obviously is a little less formal and there's some more grace involved in that. Like we're saying, sometimes it's just right off the cuff. Sometimes it's planned 10 seconds in advance, 40 minutes in advance, or two weeks in advance. I don't know. You know that somebody's going to be there and you hit each other up. And then the deeper level is collaborating, where it's a little more formal. We're saying, all right, we're going to collaborate on either a song or a project. And over the years, you've had people collaborate with you and your band You've collaborated with people like Winona Judd, John Prine, Eric Church, Johnny Winter, Los Lobos, so many people on, on both sides that you've been a collaborator and you've had people collaborate with you. What does it take to be a good collaborator?
1: Um, just be a nice person and be open-minded and don't be so stubborn that you're not into trying things. You know, I think that's one beautiful thing about collaborating is— you're drawing in from different strengths from, you know, different people. And you just you, you go in and you try it out and you see how it goes. And sometimes it clicks and sometimes it doesn't. But there's no pressure. You know, I think the, the best thing you can do is, is gain a friendship, you know, and, and you, you know, like you said, like I've worked with all sorts of people. And I look back and some of the people that really clicked, interestingly enough, might not have been somebody I thought of, you know. Um, so you just you never really know. Um, until, you, you, until you try it and I, I think that's one of the great things about it is um, you know, you just sit down and maybe you go in with an idea and, and just maybe have some scraps whether it's a groove or maybe some lyrics or maybe a chorus or, or something and just, just have something to bring to the table to try and then if it doesn't work then you, you just open minded enough to move on and, and then maybe just try to go with the flow and see what happens
0: that seems to be a pretty universal answer. So I'm glad that that's it. And it wasn't just some extra secret that you had that we didn't.
1: No, honestly, <laughs> it's just being open minded and also maybe drawing in from, you know, current events, you know, things that are going on in the world that, you know, you can apply to the moment. You know, right now, if I was going to meet up with somebody, you know, it, it might be about wildfires or, you know, the hurricanes or, you know, something that people deal with on a daily level, you know, or even like, you know, as sadly as opioid addiction is, it's really real, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be so necessarily blunt, like we're talking about opioids, but maybe just talking about addiction and talking about how people are sad, you know, yeah. or, you know, and just trying to communicate with people about things that mean things to people right now.
0: When you're writing, do you think more of the inspiration side or the craft side first?
1: I tend to go more with the inspiration side first. You know, try to be inspired by something. And actually, a lot of times, um, music will come to me in my dreams. So I'll wake up and maybe have an idea or maybe a whole song. Um, You know, or something will happen in my dream that will maybe inspire me to start to write a song. So it might not be the actual song, but maybe an idea. You know, so those things can, can help fuel an idea. But also the craft side, you know. You want to have a great first line, you know, something to really draw people in. Um, You want to have music that is pleasing, you know, that it doesn't matter what it is. You know, I went to music school and the one thing I learned is nothing is wrong. You know, the only thing that is right is what feels right. And if it sounds good to you and if it it moves you. It doesn't have to be a perfectly crafted song, you know, because that's the great thing about music is there is no one way to write a, a song. You know, and that and also it can come in the form of like just singing out of nowhere and have an idea or sitting at an instrument and playing a piano and then having that create its own thing. And then you add to it or a guitar and then you add to it or playing with somebody and then, oh, my gosh, whatever they just did that really inspired me. And I want to do this now, you know, or go there, you know, so it's all there's no one way to do any of it, at least for me.
0: You mentioned going to music school. You went to Berkeley, right? Yes. Did you go for, what was your degree in?
1: So when I first started, it was for arranging and performance. And then oh. and then I switched and it became professional music, which basically was my way of making it so I could do like a double major without having two majors. So it was just a mixture of performance and, you know, and writing and learning about, you know legal aspects and music and things like that. So it was kind of a lot of different things that I went for, but it was basically a bachelor of arts degree in music. So I yeah. I took, you know, all your regular courses too like physics and and you know your English and your art history and it was incredible. Like I, I loved it. It was great. And I was very young. You know, I started right out of high school, the summer out of high school and graduated a year early. So I was only 20 when I graduated college and kind of thrown out there into the wolves of the music industry and yeah and it, it actually took a few years until after I was out of college to really realize what my dream was which was to really write my own songs and play my own music and play blues and and do things like that where when I first graduated I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was playing.
0: Did you recognize yourself as an artist when you first graduated?
1: Not really. I I kind of knew I was a singer, you know, and I could sing any style of music, you know, from opera to country to blues to rock to, you know, funk music, whatever. But I didn't really know what my calling was until I had some friends that were running a blues jam up at Johnny D's in Somerville. And they're like, we need singers, you know, why don't you come down and Got together with some of my friends from Berkeley, um, Mike Peel from Groovosaurus back in the day, and, and um, Tim Guerin and um, Bruce Bears, and a bunch of the guys that used to play in Boston, and just started sitting in and learned how to play electric guitar back then, too. Like, I never played electric guitar until I was in my 20s. So I really, re- yeah, I played acoustic from like 15 until about 22, and then I started playing electric. And that's when I decided to stop playing in a really bad wedding band. And it wasn't about making the rent anymore. It was more about like, well, what do I want to do? So I went from making like good money to making no money, but being happy. And that was awesome. It was the best thing I did. And then we just, I I borrowed some money to make our first record because we started, you know, playing at festivals. And then I paid that back within like six months you know to make that first record just so I had something to sell off stage and that's what got me my record deal was me selling so many things off the stage got me a record deal you know basically they're like oh well you can probably sell you know 50,000 you know units and then we sold 600,000 so they were wow. like what you know so so that really worked out for me I, I just lucked out and right place right time and honestly, I was so happy I made the move to just do what I love to do and make like $13 a gig instead of, you know, whatever, just because it was fun, you know? And yeah. so it was, it was a big, you know, change for me, but I, I realized, you know, that's when I realized I needed to do more songwriting and I needed to focus more on my artistry and what it was it that I wanted to do. And, and so that was a big change.
0: You touched on one thing there that I want to just come back to because, well, part, most of that was kind of journey related. And many of us, we're, we're, we don't know how everybody's come along in their journey. And you talked about coming out of college, not really knowing exactly what you wanted to do, singing in a wedding band, making decent money, and then changing it up. And that was a similar thing for me. I, I started playing in kind of a function band, playing things. I didn't really know what I wanted to do Although there's plenty of people that love that and that's what they love to do and that's great, but not everybody is called to that thing. Can you speak into the difference between financial success, financial freedom, whatever phrase you wanna use, versus artistic fulfillment?
1: Yeah, well, that was exactly it. I mean, right at that point for me, I realized, what am I doing? I am a singing waitress on a ship, and I'm also singing in these wedding bands, function bands, whatever you want to call it. You know, we did all sorts of types of things. You know, it could be anything from a charity event to whatever, but the fulfillment was missing. You know, I didn't want to sing Mariah Carey cover tunes. I didn't want to sing Janet Jackson. You know, that was their music, you know, and I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I was in a band – I mean, I was always in, like, original kind of rock bands, too, growing up. Like, at 13, I was in a band with some kids from a local town in Situate. This kid Terry Stebbins growing up, he had a band. And we'd cover all sorts of stuff from Boston and, you know, the Beatles to whatever. Um, But then, you know – That only gets you so far, you know? And then I was in a band that I I was asked to come and sing in, and then I could also introduce some of my songs. So that was the first real step of um, getting some of your own songs really out there. And I was a teenager. I was in college. And that was um, a guy named Ted Larkin. He had a band called The Smokin' Section. And I got to sing in his band and through him, we met Al Anderson from NRBQ. He lived across the street from where we would do these Tuesday night gigs and he would show up all crazy partying. And, you know, so I had all these amazing experiences as like a teenager because I was in college, 17, 18, 19 years old, sitting in at these clubs. And then I realized, you know, wow, this is a lot more fun doing your own stuff and mm-hmm. it really wasn't until—so I graduated college and then at 20. And then about 22, I ran into these girls, um, Adrian Hayes and Little Annie Raines, up in Boston. It, the House of Blues had just opened up in Cambridge, and we went to go see uh, Joe Lewis Walker play, who is a blues guy, that, you know, we went and saw. And we all just started talking, and we, we realized, hey, you know, we're all three young women, and we all love blues, and, you know, here's Annie— was in a a duo at the time with Paul Rochelle, but she was like talking about Big Walter and, and Little Walter and Sonny Boy Williamson and, you know, and James Cotton. And James Cotton actually was playing at the House of Blues for the opening, the very opening night. Ran into Annie and she was up on stage playing with James and then they invited me to get up and play with them. And it was just so fun just being in the moment and realized couple of days later when we met Adrian started talking to her and she loved muddy waters and she loved you know like all these bands the Almond Brothers and all this stuff and we realized how much we had in common and here we are three young girls were 22 23 and 24 and we started my first solo band and that was mm. it was so freeing you know to be able to play blues but also be able to play your own original music and they all wrote and I wrote and so it was really our first time really getting out in front of people and and showing people really kind of what more of our passion was. So that's when I went yeah. to not making a lot of money, but making good decisions on who to play with and who, you know, we had a great time. We had so much fun that it's so much fun to go to work and have a good time and get fulfilled from your live performances, too. And started working up a, a following. And and then, you know, we joined like the Battle of the Blues Bands and won in Boston and got to go to Memphis. And then we came in yeah. second for the international competition and because of that, that really helped break us out into the festival scene. So that was the first time we got to play festivals. So it was, you know, the King Biscuit Festival in Helena, Arkansas and the Jacksonville uh, Beach Festival, which was Spring in the Blues back in 94. And, you know, so all of those things really helped build my career and also helped get us out there in front of people. So that's why I needed to make a record. So I borrowed some money and, you know, I borrowed like 10 grand, made a record, printed it and had it to sell off the stage. And, you know, that was sort of like our business card. And then we started getting gigs, you know, so it was sort mm-hmm. of, you know, a way back then to really meet people and get in front of people and then build up, you know, your you know, you're following just through doing live shows.
0: How old were you when you felt like you had your thing? Or like, what? when did you feel like, all right, I've got my thing, I've got my sound, I've got my voice, my artistic identity?
1: I don't know. I mean, I still feel like I'm finding that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But at the same time, I think it really clicked when I did the Just Won't Burn record in like 98, I guess. Um, and then, you know, that was a big turning point for me. Um, Just because I I think it was the first time I was getting recognition for doing my thing, you know, and so I don't know if that's really when I got this my sound or not. But uh, it definitely was evolving at that point and really coming more into the person that I am now as a musician. But it might have been a little later. It might have been more in the like 2000s even, you know, in two thousand, you know, I started touring with B.B. King and. I did probably four or five world tours with him. And so that was a big part of my life. And it really helped establish more of who I, I am. Because, I mean, blues has been a huge influence in me for me. And um, I think that was definitely a changing point, you know, like a turning point and helped solidify who I was. You know, Willie Nelson, B.B. King, um, and John Mellencamp, the three of them really took me on early on. And doing tours with them really help solidify you know who who I became.
0: Alright this is some good conversation. I gotta remind you though have you guys not gone to that Neural DSP website yet? You gotta go check it out. Use that 30% off coupon. Wong that's my last name. And while you're there check out the Archetype Corey Wong plugin. I guarantee you if you are looking for good clean or edge of breakup tones this is the plugin for you. There's three different amps a board, EQ, three different caps. Come on! You can use it live. You can use it in the studio. There's that 14-day free trial. Check out all the plugins and let me know which one's your favorite. Like I've said before, I've seen you around the blues festival circuit, the jam festival circuit. There's a lot of blues artists that seem like would it's a natural fit to fit also in the jam thing. And there's a lot of people in the jam circuit. I'm just going to call it that, whatever, the scene. That fit more in the jazz realm there's a lot of people in the jam circuit that fit more in the pop realm what do you think it is about you guys and and even in any of those like the jazz to jam the blues to jam the pop to jam why are some acts able to cross over and work in both and what do you think it it is that makes some not work
1: i think the jam scene for example is a perfect example of how improvisation is the key you know, and like you're saying, they can be jazz artists or they can like someone like Jonathan Batiste. He He's a perfect example of someone who can fit into all of those categories. But that's because he's such an incredible musician and he has the knowledge and the passion for a lot of those different things. Um, and I think the jam scene is, you know, an extension of folk music and rock music that is based on improvisation, you know, and and jazz and blues are very much a part of both of those. So, I think it's kind of just like a, a coming together of all the different scenes, you know. And anybody can get up. I mean, you think about bands like um, Eric Krasno and Soul Live and those guys. When I first met them, they were a good, you know, band that you know was sort of jazzy, but then they also can be poppy. They also can be blue, you know. Blues, they can be in the jam scene. You know, you can put them in a lot of car- categories, you know, and Derek was always much, you know, had a very strong blues base, but also he's very heavily influenced by jazz music. And here's somebody who can stretch and improv. And that's why he's such a part of the jam scene. Um, yeah. Warren Haynes, another good example, somebody who can really stretch and improv and they can just play for hours and hours and just have fun. Jimmy Herring, widespread panic, you know, the, these kind of people, they just know how to play all different forms of music and have a love and a respect for a lot of different styles of music. And that's why you can jam because you can all get up and play together and you be like, oh man, you're quoting this person or you're quoting that. Like, you know, they know the knowledge, you know, they know the language. And, and that's what I think is really cool about the jam scene is that it can be anybody. It can be reggae band gets up with a blues band, gets up with a, a jazz band. You know, it, yeah. it doesn't matter, you know, or like you said, pop, you know. It, and what is pop? It's just whatever is popular at the time. So,
0: You mentioned picking up the electric guitar in your 20s. Do you feel like that was a disadvantage because you felt like you got a late start or you felt like it was did you feel like it was an advantage because you had already played some acoustic guitar and now you it's like I don't know I'm just picking up something new
1: at the time it was a huge advantage to be able to play an instrument and that's what I felt like I needed to do because I was trying to communicate ideas and as a singer it's hard to communicate ideas unless you're playing piano or guitar and or drums even or bass or something so for me I felt like it was A good opportunity to be able to communicate with a rhythm section and just hop up in an improvisational um, situation, you know, so I thought it was very important for me at the time. And honestly, I got up and played guitar. I played rhythm for like the first year. I wouldn't even solo. People were like, take a solo. I'm like, no. I'm not ready because I wanted to be able to say something. It's not about licks. You know, it's not about just, you know, for me, it's about being able to tell a story and make music music. Like I always wanted to be able to say something. So then when I was finally ready to solo, I, I had to make sure that it was an extension of my singing. You know, I obviously can't play guitar like I can sing, but I definitely am able to communicate an idea better now.
0: I was gonna ask that if if you feel like your guitar playing, especially the way that you solo, is benefited because you're such a singer and can do the licks with your voice, and then you're trying to do them on the guitar, figure them out. Do you have that mind to finger connection?
1: I do with certain things, um, but it's sort of a limited vocabulary. You know, on, honestly, like I hope someday that I can have that connection, like my husband does. You know, but he is so gifted and he is just sort of like the perfection of being able, able to create what you hear and making mm-hmm. it happen. Um, so, you know, I would I would like to be able to do that someday. Um, I can do that to an extent, but I'm still kind of limited. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it, it definitely has created a sound for me. So I have my own style because of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always learning and I'm always willing to learn more. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I definitely... I love it. It's definitely addictive. You know, playing guitar can be really fun and addictive, as you probably know, and yeah. uh, <laughs> and can relate with yourself. Um, so yeah, I i don't know. I'm learning how to, to make that connection tighter.
0: Well, I think for some of us that really play guitar as our main thing and then try to sing a little bit would say the same thing about singing, where I, I don't have the mind to mouth connection where I'm trying to get the thing out of my... Uh, Like I hear the lick, but nope, those uh, four or five wrong notes in that run.
1: That is a tricky thing. And honestly, in that exact situation, I have found that it's better to either learn all the guitar first and then sing on it or learn all the singing and then work on the guitar. Mm. But you have to have one down. You can't. You can't be thinking about both at the same time. That's extra tricky, and that's when you start tripping over yourself. So I definitely have that advantage as a singer, that I can memorize things quickly and melodically, and I can hear it, and then I can hear where it's going. So guitar-wise, I know where it's going because vocally I know where it's going. So that helps. But I definitely think there is a time when I have to go on autopilot. So I don't even know when I'm playing on guitar Mm -hmm. a lot of times. I don't know even what chords I'm playing sometimes, I just look down and I know that I'm in the right area. Like I know what key I'm in and I know I'm maybe in the right, you know, I just think about the key and then I know about the changes, obviously, because I have to memorize them. And then once I get that in lockdown, then I can sing over it. But it is, it's definitely a coordination thing.
0: Guitars are hard.
1: (laughs) They are. It's a hard instrument. They are. It is. It is. It is, but it is yeah. fun.
0: Derek is somebody who plays slide and plays it in a really unique way. Do you ever play slide? And does he ever say, like, you take a slide solo and you're like, ah, ah, ah. I'm not going to take a sax solo in front of John Coltrane, especially when he's standing
1: right next to me. What? <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because when I met Derek, I used to play slide and I even wrote songs in open tuning. And I have this one song called Looking for Answers that I wrote in open D. Now, Derek plays in open E all the time. He doesn't play in standard. He
0: never, never plays in anything other than open E.
1: Well, not always. No, he'll play in other open tunings. But for the most part, his main axe is, is open E. That would be like his standard. Yeah. And so I, my, my main tuning is standard, but then there'll be songs that he'll play an open A, G, D, C, whatever. And same with me, I'll have songs that I'll be playing an open C or open A or open G or D, depending on the song. And then it'll usually be, for me, mostly a rhythm thing. But in the old days, when I met him, I did play slide, and I would play an open tuning a little bit, and um, and I was a huge fan of Elmore James, and he is also a huge fan of Elmore James. But so it was really kind of neat to see, you know, all you know how how he plays, because then it made me actually quit. Like when I first met him, I like literally was like, I give up. Like, why (laughs) am I going to play slide next to you? Like you said, like playing next to Coltrane or something, you know, because he was so like his intonation was so perfect. And it was kind of shocking, honestly, like at first, like I was like, oh, my gosh, like how is his intonation so right on all the time? And he doesn't always play with a slide. I mean, he plays regular, too and his but it doesn't matter his intonation is always right on and his rhythm playing is beautiful and it's always right on and it always builds and you know he's really kind of a perfect guitar player so you know it was it was definitely intimidating but I felt like for women I'm going to stand up and uh, keep on playing <laughs> like, yeah. you know cuz I thought well girls need to have a chance you know and it is sort of a a man's world you know especially guitar you know, growing up, I knew of a handful of girls that play guitar. What, Chrissy Hines, Joan Jett, and Lita Ford, and Bonnie Raitt. I mean, I don't, I don't know. There weren't a huge amount of them. Uh, the girl from Heart, Nancy Wilson. But other than that, I, I hadn't really heard, unless it was Joni Mitchell, I didn't yeah. really know of any other women. And like now, I've noticed in the last 10 to 15 years, a huge resurgence of young girls playing guitar. And being able to sing at the same time, which is great. And honestly, I think it's long overdue. And yeah. some of these girls are really proficient, like really like 10 and 12 years old and they're shredding. So I'm like, yes, this is awesome, you know, because you need more of that. It's, it's, you know, music is for everybody. It's not a yeah. sport, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing that you can share and communicate with people. Yeah. You
0: know? I know as a dad of two daughters having that visibility for them to be able to see girls playing bass, girls playing guitar, playing drums. I, I see it in their eyes when they're watching the video. Like, oh I like oh this oh that's the man with the girl who plays guitar. It's like, yeah. So it it's fun to be able to see that. And I I think that's really cool. I'm bummed that you quit playing Slide because of Derek, but I am glad to see that you have your thing on guitar, because when I've seen you play, you you have a thing on the guitar. And I feel like you you communicate through your songs and through your voice very clearly. And in a less overt way, you have your thing on the guitar. So how has that, how have you developed that? Like your, your presence on the guitar, like you talk about Joni Mitchell is a very strong presence on the guitar with her vocal. That's a very obvious thing for you. You've got a thing on the guitar and with your vocal. What is the relationship in your writing and you as an artist between the guitar and your voice?
1: In the past, when I've done my solo stuff, I I tend to be more, I've noticed like some of the writing tends to be either very song oriented or like very, not necessarily song oriented, um, I guess blues, more blues influence. And then, then I feel like I can kind of expand more on my guitar solos and things like that. Um, but with this band I've realized you know I'm just trying to find space because I don't want there's already so many people on um, up there and sometimes you don't need certain things so I'm, I'm not trying to play just to play you know I'm trying to add So I do find you know there's less necessarily moments where I'm needed you know so I I tend to not play as much with this band but I do, I think Derek has really helped me expand and be able to find more opportunity to do that and to make it more of an extension of what I do and to have a voice. And I think that really has, like over the last few years even, like the last five years, for example, has been blossoming more and more. And it's just a matter of just having opportunity to do it, you know, and to find it myself because I – I don't always know until I'm in the moment. Sometimes I don't know. I've never even soloed on a tune and he'll be like, solo. And I'm like, what? What key are we in? And I have to think because I'm thinking vocally. I'm not thinking, oh my gosh, we're in E flat. Okay, we're in E flat. All right, I know where, we're, where we are now. Like I just, I have to almost like, like recompute my brain but once I'm there and I'm in the moment then it's great then I can I can feed off of me what the horns are doing and like rhythmic stuff that's happening or like what Derek is doing melodically and then I can you know playoff of him. you know, so i I just try to listen to what's going on. and you know, whatever the keyboard's doing, you know, in the past, whatever Kofi was doing or maybe Gabe's doing now or you know whatever Derek's doing. I really just try to hone in on that and just focus and just try to be part of the conversation because that's what it is. It's having a conversation musically on the instrument. So I'm just trying to either rhythmically do something or or say something like melodically in the moment and just trying to like have some attitude and, and like say it with confidence, you know, and that's, that's all I do. That's all I can do.
0: Your band is stacked with people that just emit emotion. They just release emotion and so much human Niss. Your band is filled with people that tell me that the robot takeover won't happen because the robots can't simulate what you guys do. <laughs> and whether whether it be you singing or Derek's playing or Gabe's keyboard stuff, there. I mean, everybody on stage, there's so much human emotion.
1: Mike Madison, he's an amazing songwriter, beautiful singer. He has so much emotion in his voice, you know. And then Gabe will sing, and oh my gosh, I mean, I I ball now. I mean, I, I'm in love with him. His His singing and playing is so beautiful, and, you know, him coming into this band when we needed him is really— added another dimension. And like you said, everybody, you know, Mark Rivers has such personality, and Alicia has so much personality in her voice, and then the drummers have personality, and the bass playing, oh my gosh, now with Brandon Boone playing bass, what a beautiful, almost flawless player, who just, he's so fluid, and he adds so much, and he helps, you know, crescendo the band, or bring us down to a whisper, it's just, it's awesome. Everybody, Kebby Williams... Our tenor player, I mean, Elizabeth Lee with all this extra power and her trombone playing and and Ephraim playing trumpet. I mean, they're all different elements that add to this band in a way that is so unique. And I, I agree with you. We're not letting the robots take over. You know, the human emotion is pouring out in this band because we all care and we love it and we, we, tr- we drip it. We do. We drip the human aspect of life in this band for sure.
0: So you mentioned Kofi. And... I have a question because I never knew Kofi. Kofi Burvich was a bandmate and a very special human from what I've gathered from anybody who's known him or spent time. Uh, I can only imagine what his loss meant to the people that he surrounded himself with. But is there something that you take away from his playing and the time spent performing together where you say to yourself, okay, I played that song that way because Kofi had complimented my parts in a certain way or nobody can do this the way that Kofi did, and that's okay because that's just how special he was. You have different people that, that accent and, and bring different things to the table for the band in, a, in such a unique, with everybody having such a unique fingerprint. How do you, how have you dealt with that? And how have you just kind of gone through that transition?
1: Well, you know, somebody like Kofi, who all of us agree that have known him and worked with him, was a musical genius. He's somebody who had perfect pitch. He could hear everything going on at all times. And, you know, and really always almost perfectly added the perfect thing to the song, whether you knew, knew it or not. You know, and he was always so funky. and he'd, And he was very humble, humble as a person and humble in his playing. He never was like real showy, you know, and he never was like, You know, like, some people come out and it's just, like, balls out. I mean, I hate to say that, but whatever. It's just like, you know. But, like, he he could be very subtle and just such a badass. Like, you know, like, you work with Jonathan Batiste, for example. Jonathan is very much like that, too. Like, they can be incredibly complex and have multiple layers of arrangements going on that accentuate a song. And nobody else can really do that, you know. Nobody else can maybe bring Mm -hmm. that to the table. So... I don't know. It's been very interesting, you know, since he's been gone to see how the music has has gone on. But I think it also helps having musicians, for example, since now Gabe is here with us, Gabe actually understands Kofi's playing and can see it because he's musically gifted. You know, he's a very different player than Kofi, but at the same time, he respected him and he knew what he was doing and he can add a lot of those layers that we needed you know, to fill that position. But at the same time, he also has his own personality and his own style of writing. And that is very tricky and hard to do. But he is very gifted and is able to to do that, you know, to bring some of the things that we miss about Kofi, but also to bring his own beautiful style and artistry to it. Um, and it's been incredibly difficult on Derek. You know, Derek worked with Kofi since 1999, 2000, you know, in that that area. And even before that, you know, they worked on some other projects together. But he's been, you know, his right, right-hand man, you know, for a long time. And and the two of them are incredibly gifted in their artistry. And so, he, you know, I think Derek was a part of Kofi and Kofi's a part of Derek. So... You know, having that has been a tremendous loss and I'm sure a huge void for Derek, you know, because he was somebody he could throw something at and then it would become this, you know, you know, this beautiful arrangement, this beautiful idea, you know, they could expand on together. So it's hard to compare Kofi to anybody just because he was, Mm -hmm. you know, an arranger and a and a writer in a very different way and and a very beautiful, complex musician, that he could hear everything that the singers were doing or the horn players, like, who's playing a C sharp? You need to be playing C natural. Or who's doing this, you know? Like, he could hear things that none of us could hear. and Or maybe we could hear, but we couldn't identify, you know? And so it was, you know, a gift to get to play with him and to know him, and he definitely left too soon, but, you know, he he always had so much to offer and and was always creating and, and always making beautiful music and you know it, it's it's definitely difficult to to even conceptualize cuz he's only been gone for you know a couple of years now which is crazy um you know a year and a half or 2 years i don't even know time's so confusing now with this pandemic but um yeah but um you know the last record you know we we didn't play a lot of the songs because, you know, live until the record was released, and the day it was released was the day he passed. So, and then we had to go on mm. stage a few hours after hearing of his passing, and that was very intense. And we were in his hometown that he grew up in, in DC. So the whole thing was very powerful and very emotional. And, you know, it's definitely a huge void you know, for everybody in the band, you know, we love him mm-hmm. and, and miss him, but his music is gonna, you know, we're, you know, gonna pay tribute to him whenever we can and talk about him. And mm-hmm. we find out more and more all the time, other artists that knew about him and that loved him and respected him. And, and that's really beautiful.
0: That's gotta be really tough. And, uh, I'm so, I'm so sorry about that.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. And, you know, we're just, um, lucky that that we're all here, and we're still doing what we love to do, and, and we don't take it for granted, and we don't take each other for granted. You know, I think yeah. that's one thing about our band is that you know we really care about each other, you know, mm-hmm. our band and our crew. You know, we don't really even separate the crew. I mean, the crew is the band. Yeah. So, I don't know. As far as it goes, I mean, we're really blessed. We know that we're lucky to do what we love to do and and just keep trying to make good music and trying to make people yeah. feel good. And have a good time. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Who wrote the song Anyhow?
1: Anyhow was originally started by, well, actually, I'd have to ask Derek exactly because I'm sure the instrumental part was Derek on that. I, I think I remember mm-hmm. a lot of that. And then some of the other arrangement parts and stuff with the band at the time, which would have been Kofi and, and Falcon and JJ and I think it was Tim LaFave um, on that. Then from there, you know, lyrically, you know, Mike and, and Derek and I um, yeah. sat down and, and worked out yeah. a lot of that. And actually that song, Verse by Verse, was the three of us just going over different ideas. Yeah, Derek yeah. had a lot to do with the lyrics on that song yeah. um, and Mike and myself. So it was a collaboration of really the whole band on that song.
0: Yeah, there was a live version of that that I probably watched 25 times in a row one day. That song is always really just connected with me. Musically, just like the whole thing feels so cool. And then the tiny desk version that you guys did is so cool. And yeah, it's fun to just see those different versions. As somebody who's a fan of live music and somebody who's a musician, obviously we like seeing different iterations of the way a song evolves from the time it's recorded on an album to playing it on tour, to playing it at festivals, playing it in a small room versus playing it at a big (laughs) in a big stadium or something that, that one for me just like has this transcendent quality to it.
1: It is, it is a funny song like that. I I've noticed, you know, different people's reactions towards that song. And for example, my father loves that song and he's always been a pretty good, um, judge of, of things that people like, you know, and I've had a lot of fans that really connect with that song. And, and I sometimes don't think that Derek realizes, for example, like, how much people connect with that song. He might be like, oh, that's okay. That song, you know, not like that. He's trying to put it off, but he doesn't think it's maybe, you know, star quality or whatever. But I think sometimes it's easy to not see how other people perceive you and songs. And I do, I do find that that is one that comes up amongst, you know, some of our friends and fans that, that they really connect with. And I think it's because it tells a story and it and it builds you know and it and it's very it's sort of intimate but like the music is a little intricate and you know and it it sounds subtle and easy but it's not and then yeah. it and then it gets like a little melancholy and then it keeps building and building and then the horns come in and the background vocals and the and the chorus is really powerful so i yeah. think the combination of of the dynamics of that song can really bring people in i think people are drawn to dynamics naturally you know you want to yeah. You hear a story and you want to hear the complexity, but you want to have it like move you in a way that you you feel the vibration, you know, of the band, and that that song can get really big at the end. It can really get cooking. So, oh, yeah. so I think that's something yeah. that's nice, and the improv will take off in a hundred different directions on that. You know, he'll even have me solo sometimes. And I'm like, what? Me? Ah, you know, you know, I don't see it coming, you know. So it's just whatever, you know, is moving at the moment, you know, and and, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, it, it could be guitar, but it could be keyboards. It could be saxophone. You know, you just never know.
0: You talked about your fans a little bit and you have a fan club and we are all as artists trying to figure out. Uh the old school fan club thing versus the modern day digital artist thing, your Patreons, your subscribe to my YouTube, like YouTube premium thing or whatever. And there's so many different ways that people go about connecting with their fans in a more quote unquote exclusive or behind the scenes way. Can you tell me a little bit about the Swamp Family Fan Club? how you guys thought of that and kind of what 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 goes on in that? Because I'm curious from kind of business standpoint and just connecting with a fan standpoint as well.
1: Well, that's a good question. Honestly, like, I don't really know. Like, I feel like, well, Swamp Family probably came up, uh, along because we call our studio Swamp Raga Studios. Cool. And so Swamp Family is sort of like our big extended family of the band and crew. Um, And then when it comes to the fan pages, a lot of times, um, Mark Lowenstein, who works for us, does a lot of the social media stuff. So I feel bad. I feel like, honestly, I'm not as connected as I should be with the fans, and I would like to be more. And It's kind of ironic because the other day I was going, since we're home during this pandemic, I'm going through like old photos and old stuff. And I literally found notebooks of old fan clubs from my old solo band, like pages and pages of people with their addresses and stuff in the old days when you would mail out a fan club. So I feel the way that we're connected with the fans a lot is through social media, but watching them. Through some of the fan clubs and then also connecting with people that you see night to night in the live performances. You know, there's so many people that come to the shows. And that's the one thing I really miss during this pandemic is being out there and seeing those faces, you know, seeing the people that come out to a lot of the shows and and, you know, and they'll be there backstage and you you say hi and you take pictures or whatever and you sign stuff for them, whatever. But really it's that human interaction and, oh, you know, we really like the new song or, you know, oh, we're really missing Kofi or, you know, it's just nice to have people talk to you in person. You know, I, I really love that. Um, but I do feel like I need to learn more about the social stuff. I mean, I'm I'm from a different generation, you know. We didn't even have cell phones until, you know, the 2000s. So for me, I mean— it's just, it's a different thing. You know, I just, uh, I'm I'm learning too, we'll, we'll just say. And so we have a lot of people that help us in our group that, that do a lot of that. And one way that they connect mostly with our fans during this time is they play a lot of the live shows, you know, that, you know, were recorded. And, you know, thanks to Bobby and Brian for taping a lot of those shows, people can have the live stuff to listen to. And I think that's a really nice um, perk you know, that they can have during this time since they don't have the actual live performances, you know, to have the live shows in the past that maybe brought up some good memories.
0: I think we're all trying to figure it out. <laughs> that is actually the the real answer beyond that. Is we all have varying degrees of thinking we have it figured out, but it's an interesting time. I mean, especially right now this year, we're all kind of relearning what it means to connect with the fans when we can't necessarily do it on the in-person But to also just create that that human connection, like we're talking about, beyond just a recorded thing, but the real...
1: The interplay between people and to know what they're going through. You know, so many people have had such beautiful things to say about some of the music we've made, and some of them have said, you know, you've helped me through... You know, a divorce or you've helped me through cancer, you know, or, you mm-hmm. you know, I, my loved one passed away, but they listen to your music, you know, and you inspire them to stay positive. You know, things like that are, are what keep an artist going, honestly, and keep you working and always wanting to do more because you want to help people heal. It's, it's hard yeah. living these days at times. And, you know, there's a lot of mental struggle you know, for people, Mm -hmm. especially during the pandemic, when you can't be together and have human touch and have, you know, hold somebody and hug somebody. It's really hard to connect. And that's one great thing about music is it it can touch your soul. It can really move you and heal you. And I think right now more than ever, we need each other, you know, and we need to be there for each other. If you can't be there physically, be there mentally, you know, talk to people and and I, I would like to get more involved with figuring out how to be more in, in tune with some of the fans, you know, and and I I also am learning, you know, about how to do that.
0: Well, as we kind of close out, is there anything that you're working on or anything else you've you've alluded to a couple of the live projects that you at the beginning of this that you were talking about. Is there anything else that you guys are doing that we should be looking out for or checking out? Any last parting things that you wanna make sure that you You squeeze in here so everybody knows about?
1: (laughs) Well, um, I mean, honestly, they've been working on those two live records, you know, the Layla record and the Mad Dogs and Englishmen. And we made a movie, a documentary, about the Mad Dogs and Englishmen that's going to be amazing, trying to work on distribution now for that. Hopefully that will be something that people can look forward to seeing in the near future. And we've been writing, and we're going to get together and continue our writing sessions Um, and it's just been the core so far because it's hard to travel Yeah. so a lot of the core is in Atlanta and then Gabe's in Nashville so he'll go from Nashville and come down to basically Atlanta and we'll get the Atlanta guys together and and we've been writing a bit so um, you know just trying to do another record is our next project and then hopefully we're touring by next summer please lord (laughs) I mean (laughs) we need more live music and it's something we have to be patient with But at the same time, we can get creative. And if we have to start, you know, doing more stuff online, you know, we'll figure that out. And maybe we'll do that, you know, coming in October or November. Maybe we'll do some stuff.
0: I like that. And the Layla album, I am very much looking forward to. For anybody listening, I was there live standing side stage. There was like a little thing above, like a a big, a tall riser uh, on the side of the stage. And I was watching kind of from above and just being blown away by these tunes being done in a unique way, but paying homage in a complete respectful and wonderful way. I'm so excited to hear that and relive that festival in that moment. And that's one of the things that I really love about what you guys have coming up. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that.
1: Well, thank you so much, Corey, and thanks for having me. It really has been a pleasure.
0: Yes, what a treat. And hope, I gotta get down and check out your guys' studio sometime. That place looks amazing.
1: <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It is fun. Bobby's over here giving you the heads up. Yes.
0: All right. Well, Bobby, thanks for recording all the shows. I know I enjoy it. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to hearing your work on all that. So thanks for joining us, Susan. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll see you sometime in person, like you're saying. Let's do it. That is cool. That's so cool. They have this. You guys couldn't see it because I was on a Zoom call with her and you're just hearing the audio. But they have this really cool studio that's just in their backyard. I want that when I grow up. And it's super cool that they have Bobby, their engineer, record all their live shows, mix all their stuff from their studio there. That is so cool. And you can tell that it's a team-oriented thing. What a cool operation. Thanks, Susan, for being with us. We'll see you next time when I interview my friend Tom Mish.
1: Peace.